More than three years ago, Trevor Mori and I created a blog devoted to the sharing of opinions in a positive space. Trevor is now well on his way to becoming a doctor. He hosts a podcast called This Clerkship Life, committed to helping medical students cope with the rigors and added responsibilities of clerkship. Most recently, he returned from Tanzania, where he volunteered at Together We Can, a women's center NGO located in Moshi. My name is Michael Bradburn, and I am a humanities graduate. Through a passion for baseball and statistics, my enthusiasm has gotten me published on sites such as SB Nation, Baseball Prospectus, and Sports on Earth. I have made appearances on 99.5 Paducah and Beyond the Box Scores In Play podcast. A little while ago, I came across a quote from Bill Nye. Everyone you will ever meet knows something you don't. Together, along with you, we're going to test that. This is Real Small Talk. Hello and welcome to Real Small Talk. My name is Michael Bradburn. I'm joined here as always by Trevor Mori. Hey. And our guest here today is a regular contributor to The Girl Inside, a trans blog as well as Baseball Prospectus. You can follow her on Twitter at Tammy underscore Beth. Her name is Tammy Rainey. How are you today? Hello. I'm well. Uh, you're So you're joining us here today to talk about... Um, transgender culture and everything uh to you what is the biggest misconception about uh transgender life for my experience the people that i've encountered in uh overwhelmingly they know the thing that people misunderstand the most is they think of it as a choice or people refer to it as a lifestyle choice or whatever or they think of it as a sexual orientation because politically we're allied with the gay and lesbian community and uh, both of those are uh, really off base particularly in the idea of being a choice Uh, there's a lot of recent science that backs up the conclusion that the the, uh, psychiatric community had had for decades that it was an inborn innate trait you do make choices about how you react to it how you're going to deal with it, how you're going to treat it. But the actual existence of the condition, which they refer to as gender dysphoria, is, um, is not a chosen thing. It's like being, if say you're being born with autism or juvenile diabetes or something like that. It's just something you're born with and you say, I've got this thing, how do I deal with it? Yeah. And it's, uh, on the other misconception, um, there's no there's no real sexual attraction component to it. I mean, every trans person has some sexuality, whether it's straight or gay or asexual or whatever. But it's not a it's not the fuel which drives the transition. It has really nothing to do with whether or not you transition. Right. And I think there's science saying that different parts of your brain are kind of implicated in gender dysphoria than in um, like sexual orientation like there are different centers that control you know what you like who you identify or what gender you identify with versus like who you're attracted to yes and there were there was 
uh, all this derives from the advances in medical technology that have allowed us to do uh, learn a lot about both the brain and about human development that we didn't really know 20, 30 years ago. So, I mean, you might have been forgiven in the 80s for saying, I just don't see how that could be something you're born with. But uh, when we start looking at the brain and, uh, and the advanced technology that they have to study it, um, initially they said that there was kind of a, a body of research building up that said, you have a mostly male type brain and a mostly female type brain, and you can distinguish on these scans between the two. Uh, as they've refined that, they've come, the, the latest thing is they describe it as a mosaic where certain regions of the brain tend to be more female-like in some ways and more male-like in others, but they're, like there's not a specific pattern where part A, part B, part C always look female and D, E, and F always look male. There's uh, a spectrum of um, results, but they have like this tends to be, this is usually what a female brain looks like and what a male brain looks like. So they don't have a specific region where they can say this part right here controls gender identity. But the theorizing is that when you when you do a scan on a trans woman and you find a mostly female pattern brain and vice versa, then it's safe to theorize that something in these regions that we're seeing here has to do with gender identity. Right. And that lines up with the experience of trans people. If you go out and talk to people who have lived this for um, decades, for all, all their living memory, to the most part, you find people, uh, you see these young people transitioning now at, uh, or, or identifying themselves at five, four, six years old and saying uh, what they feel and dealing with that. And people say, well, that's shocking, that's new, that anybody would know that, they're, that they don't align with the sex that they see in the mirror at that age, but you talk to people my age that are in their 40s and 50s and transition later in life, and they'll all almost all tell you, I knew then at five, six years old what the deal was, but I didn't have any language to express it. I didn't have any anything like the information that's available now, and I did have this prevailing cultural sense of shame that this was something that was aberrant and weird and deviant that you even if you realize that you didn't tell anybody about so you know it's really difficult to account for those self-perceptions at that age with any other explanation but an inborn trait yeah and so i guess that's a good jumping off point as to when did you first notice this change in yourself I um, I perceived that there was something wrong with me, and and my memories preschool are really fuzzy. I don't, um, I don't just remember years and years of memories, so I can't say precisely when it first occurred to me. But I remember scenes, if you will, from those days where filtering them through what I understand now, I recognize as being uncomfortable with 
what was expected of me as a male. Okay. But the first time that I can remember specifically thinking, this is, this is, now I understand, was just after I started first grade. So I would have been like six years old, approaching my seventh birthday. Uh, in those days, we didn't have kindergarten. So it was right, like the first grade, get on the bus and you're really around this crowd of other kids and you, you look around and you go, where do I fit in this group? And right. that's where I remember coming to understand myself. And through my childhood, there was like, there was never a sense where like, am I sure about this? Is, am, I, am I maybe misunderstanding? There was a period during high school where I like, you know, it's kind of, every trans person has to do this at some point. You go, is it really just that I'm gay? And kind of examined my feelings. You know, as a teenager, you've got some, some sexuality on your mind now. Um, and it just didn't line up. The, the perception of myself as a male, dating a male, just there was nothing about that that was enticing. But the understanding of myself as a female, regardless of any sexual behavior, was, so to speak, the happy place. It was the place I best understood myself. And after I got out of high school and got into adulthood, I, you know, you, we're talking about the late 70s, early 80s. You look around at the culture, you, you see, so to speak, what they think of right. you, what they think of people like you. And you internalize that and you say, there's something wrong with me. I'm weird. I'm a freak. What, how can I escape this? And my escape was to double down on my religion. So I really got involved in, in committing to the idea that if I had enough faith that God would fix me. And I was really super duper good Christian that it, that it would go away. And I spent probably 20 years invested in that before I, you know, I learned enough to realize that it's not me that's in error. It's the belief system that says that I'm a freak that's in error. Do you, do you blame religion at all or? Uh, no, not really. Like I said earlier, the notion that um, you can only operate with the information you have available. And until we had solid physiological evidence, it was easy to look at this as a behavior and say, we disapprove of that behavior, just like we would disapprove of getting drunk or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. the, 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 the fault that I find with organized religion now and you can on this issue you can take this back and apply it to any number of other sociological changes down through the years is that it's highly resistant to looking at new information and adjusting the doctrines and saying we i mean you go all the way back to somebody pops up and says you know what the earth revolves around the sun not the other way around and it takes some religious thinkers, otherwise intelligent people, hundreds of years to come to the conclusion that that was actually right because it flew in the face of their traditional views. Right. 
and that that is one of the big handicaps of organized religion and in my view is that you have to drag them kicking and screaming to new information yeah and i'm i'm that's not to say that i i'm not here to badmouth religion in the sense of faith and a divine power i'm speaking more of the human tendency Sure. Uh, particularly in organized sense, to cling to the tradition. I think I think there's a lot of stigma that comes with labeling something like gender dysphoria as a medical condition, where the medical system then becomes the gatekeepers to the resources for this community and all these people who need support from um, other pe- other people. And there aren't, you know, necessarily. It, it can be difficult for somebody who's transgender to come into the medical community and not you know, not be able to be seen by a transgender doctor um, or someone who might fully understand kind of what you're going through. But uh, as a medical student and someone who's going to be in that field uh, in the future, do you have any personal experience with kind of uh, the feeling of having that labeled as like a medical condition rather than uh, like your person? Uh have um, I've had a lot of conversation with other trans people who um, had that feeling that we don't want to be kind of marked off as having a condition, having exactly. a, a fault. They would be resistant to, and which I say this advisedly, the term um, birth defect is like archaic. A, a birth anomaly is not necessarily a birth defect. But with you understanding what I mean by that, mm-hmm. I know yeah. a lot of trans people that are really resistant to the notion of being categorized as uh, a birth anomaly, what the, what the scientists call disorders of sexual development, because exactly. they don't want to seem, they don't want to be identified as disordered as if that's stigmatizing. But it's no more stigmatizing than, like, say, the diabetic on time. But if you have a condition, you have a condition. You know, there's no point in trying to to um, to politicize whether or not it's it makes things easier if we pretend it's not a condition. But you're right about the gatekeeping aspect. The the it, it, there is a danger in putting your I can't think of the word your your self direction. You know, there's a word I'm trying to you you. Um, your ability to drive your like when you confide in someone right that to um to give that over to a medical professional and they say well we don't think you need this or we're only going to give you so much of that or we're not going to sign off on this treatment because we're doctors and we know and the reality is that uh as a whole the medical profession is wildly untrained and under informed on the best practices and the best care for trans people. So, yeah, I'm not as educated as, as Trevor or you on this topic at all. Uh, so I'm trying to approach it from more of a, you know, just a average person walking around the street that knows this is becoming an issue. Like transgender is a real thing and we need to treat all people fairly. There's still so much unknown about about mm-hmm. everything and you don't necessarily need to know everything but there's a couple questions i guess i have as an average human so the idea of you brought up uh birth anomaly that's a completely new phrase to me and from my 
from my perspective, um, I always thought it was just the doctor misassigning gender. Was they, is that not they, true? The, the political, politically active trans community likes to use the word assigned, and it's there's really no point in me fighting against it because, you know, it's become the language of the movement. But it would be much better to use the word in my opinion, to use the word assumed. Mm, okay. Because, A, w- what happens, the things that make you trans are internal. They're in your brain. It can't be seen visually until you begin to treat right, it. of course. So when you're born with it, and, and there are a lot of, to backtrack a little bit, there are a lot of what are now called intersex conditions, where an infant is born with some physical difference from the typical male or female that they would appear to be and some of those are visible at birth and the doctors will talk to the parents and they'll say what do you want to do about this and and there's a whole conversation that can be had about that but some of them are not for instance there was a news story last year about a woman who has an xy chromosome pattern who gave birth and her daughter has an XY chromosome pattern. You wouldn't, if she hadn't been intersex herself, the doctors would have never known or had any reason to check the chromosomes of the daughter. And they would have said, well, this is a girl, and go on about your business and have a happy life. And until it affected her own life somewhere down the road, no one, and probably there are far more intersex people than know they are because it's not visible. So... The upshot of all that is uh, trans, being born trans is the same way. What's quote unquote wrong with you or different about you is in your brain and not visible to the doctor. So the doctor um, delivers a baby with a penis and go, oh, great, you got a boy. Go on, have a good life. No problem. Or vice versa. He's making an assumption based on visual evidence. And that assumption uh, well over 95% of the time is correct. They, the trans person is a person who has been assumed to be A, but in fact turns out to be, in terms of gender identity, B. I know you were young and you said uh, it's all kind of hazy, but was there a, was there a object in your brain that made you finally realize that identifying as female was the more comfortable person or well you what in what you do is you're reacting to the way that the world reacts to you right so if as a child the the and of course cultural expectations for gender vary depending on where you live but this phenomena exists no matter what the cultural expectation where you live happens to be but if people are reacting to you as a male expecting you you know your haircut and your clothes and your toys and who you play with and whatever to reflect the typical boy and all of that stuff is alien to you then you become miserable and you associate that with that which is physically telling them you're a male so it becomes a where as a child now as you get older and you see the physical differences particularly as you approach puberty right 
you 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 the 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 focus becomes the physical differences. My body's not right. What and there are plenty of stories of children, even preschool age children, that will attempt to cut off their genitals or threaten to because they just don't belong there. So there's there's and this is something that we really scientifically don't completely understand yet, but. Somehow, I've have used the analogy of the phantom limb syndrome of people who have had a limb amputated. Their brain is wired to think there should be a hand there, even when there's no hand there, and so it rea it, it has a a sense of dysphoria at the absence of the limb that it says should exist. Exactly. That's not a perfect analogy, but. Your brain has, they think, a conception of what, how your body should work, what should be there, what should not be there, so forth. And you experience um, the generalized word dysphoria. You experience emotional distress that it's not. And then you compound that with all these people around you, parents and teachers and whatever, saying, you know, what a fine-looking boy or um, you know, the, in the, that dictating the haircuts or the clothes or whatever, and it yeah. all becomes a piece of the same unit. We say, do you, can you people not understand what I know instinctively? Why can't you see what I see? Yeah. And do you have any personal stories like that, like where you felt this kind of disconnection and maybe talk a little bit about that from a personal experience? Um, I had... One of the few things that I remember from from preschool age is um, a sense in which I was alienated um, from things that my dad thought I should be interested in. And I, I don't really, at that time, I wouldn't have thought that it fit into that category. This is kind of retroactively putting the pieces together. But once I started school then um uh, you notice all the little things where they separate the boys and the girls to do this or do that or they're more likely to to send a girl off to to take a note to the principal's office or whatever you know you you pick up on all these little things and you go that doesn't i don't understand that right why why do they not see but as i got when I was 12, and this is probably the most clear, I mean, this is the jumping off point where you're thinking previously, maybe this is just childhood fantasizing, but this is now this has become something that I'm willing to stake a lot on. I had been, as puberty kicked in, I'd really become uncomfortable with myself because um, of body hair. Okay. I'm a really hairy person by 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 the effects of, of the hormones and so forth. And so I'm like desperately shaving this off and my parents are fussing at me. Why is, why is there so much, you know? So my parents have reason to know there's something going with me. Okay. And um, at one point I became desperate enough about that that I was going to run away from home. And I thought I will pack a suitcase full of clothes that my mom has that I can fit into. 
I will go off to like New Orleans or someplace and I will live as a girl and nobody will ever know. I was young enough and uninformed enough to think I could get away with that. This is when you were 12? So this is when I was 12. And so I took off one morning in August, which automatically, I live in Mississippi and this is August, so you can tell it's not a well thought out plan. Um, (laughs) And uh, got, um, and I won't give you every little detail of that trip, but for, for, other reasons, I ended up going four or five hours out and then turn around and coming back. But then my parents are lecturing me a couple of days later about my uh, the error of my ways. And my dad is talking about, basically, do you know what the world does to people? Like Now, I told him it's just a disguise. I didn't want to get caught, so I was going to pretend to be a girl until I got away. And I was trying to play it off. But my dad is like, oh, I've seen people like that, you know, get, go to bars and get the crap beat out of them or whatever. And you don't, you don't ever want anybody to think you're one of those people. Right. And so it just internalized all that, the world hates you sort of negativity. So as I'd go through high school, then there's these little moments where, um, something uh, one one thing that stands out was that we were talking about what we were going to do for homecoming week and one of the guys in the class suggested hey why don't some of the guys dress up like cheerleaders for the pep rally and i'm just i just almost fell out of my seat going yeah that's a great idea let's do that i'll do that Mm -hmm. and we didn't end up they, they decided not to do that but you know i you'd look for those little moments where you could indulge yourself without it being you're the one freak who who thinks that way right wow but you know all this the uh the thing about all this is and and the difference the generational difference between what people my age went through and what some of the 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 younger people like jazz jennings and, and nicole mains and so forth the names you'll see uh uh, Avery Jackson that's on the cover of the latest National Geographic uh, his mom is a good friend of mine and there's a you could do a whole show on, on that family but the difference mm-hmm. in their experience and mine is that they're, they're, the rising generation is coming up into a world that doesn't automatically condemn them right. Right. and that has really positive effects not just for them but for the people that they'll encounter and the people they'll deal with in their life, um, it, it frustrates me that the same people who are really, really shocked that anybody would let a child transition are the same people who will say to me, what about your marriage? What about your kids? What about uh, losing your job and all this thing? What about all this fallout? And I try to get them to understand that the fallout exists because of the stigma. Right. If there had been no stigma in the 80s, then I would have transitioned in the 80s, yeah. and all these things they're questioning about would never have suffered. You know, if I, if it's true, and, and one of the great burdens on, on, on my guilty conscience that my wife has suffered a great deal that she didn't ask for, didn't deserve, um, had um, no reason to expect. And she's having to deal with the fallout of, of a late transition. Um, there will never be a wife of, say, Nicole Maines that went into a relationship not knowing what was going on 
and have that bombshell dropped on our life 20 years later because of increased acceptance. Right. And what what was the moment for you um, that made you reach out and say, look, I want to start transitioning now? There, I wouldn't say it was so much a moment. Okay. There was a combination of factors um, where... Um, the kind of coming to the end of the rope in terms of the the faith and the religious response. Um, I actually was in the ministry for almost two, two decades. I would preach, effectively would preach the party line against people like myself and really believe that and thought, you know, look at me. I'm I'm doing my part, and God's going to come along and fix me, and it'll all be fine. Hmm. Well, you know, you can only ride that horse for, for so long before you start wondering, you know, if I am in fact disapproved by God, and if I am in fact thinking thoughts and, and behaving in a way that he um, doesn't want, and yet he's not doing anything to relieve that, then possibly I've been lied to about that. Well, that's one thread. And then the with the with the advent of the internet and being able to communicate with others like myself and being able to research and find out what science you know the science in say 2005 was wildly different from For what sure. would have been available in 1985. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of new information that says to me, this is not a, uh, a perversion. This is not a sin. This is a medical thing and um, something that has to be dealt with. And then there's a third thread where you just, for, for any late life transitioner, you get to a point where you can't wear the mask anymore, right. where... Um, you're just completely exhausted from playing the role of the man you're expected to be, and whether that's um, in your job or in your church or in your family or the, the way that you interact with your parents or your siblings or whatever. Um, it becomes where you just say, I can't keep doing this. And for a lot of people, the solution is suicide. Uh, the, you... Um, you can easily find um, data from studies that some 40% of all trans people have attempted or considered suicide. Uh, well, have attempted, more than that have considered, practically all have considered um, suicide at some point in their life. And that doesn't even account for the people who were successful because they're not here to answer the question anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that we can know how many uh, of just the, the random people out there that commit suicide do so, you know, what they're, you know, you yeah. have people that'll go, I have no idea what happened. I d had no clue that there was anything wrong. I don't know. I don't know how to process this. Well, whatever was wrong with that person was something they didn't want to tell anybody about. And I'm not saying every one of those people are trans or even most, but being trans is one of those things that's so, your, your culture says it's so shameful is so humiliating to admit to that it's better to die than for anybody to ever know. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a huge kind of public health issue. And uh, do you have any advice out there for anyone who's kind of struggling with that right now? Those thoughts are. It's difficult for anybody to give um, 
specific advice without knowing the situation. I no, exactly. I have a friend. I have a friend on Facebook that had, to all appearances, a very successful transition. She was um, a physician. She had gone through every procedure. She was um, well situated socially and so forth. But she had one big problem, and that was um, her ex-wife was just intensely hostile. And they had three children under the age of 10, and she completely cut my friend off from any contact with those children with the support of the courts because it was in Alabama. Hmm. Um, my friend was so miserable from that lack of contact, uh, contact with her kids that she literally went and had her breasts removed and detransitioned, not because she was unhappy with herself, because it was the only way that she'd be given just even an hour a week to spend time with her kids. And so, you know, it, from my point of view, looking in from the outside, I, you know, I say never give up, never surrender, never let them take it away from you because in my own personal experience, I didn't see a successful way to live as a male. I was either going to die or I was going to transition or I was going to be such a useless person that um, nobody would have wanted to spend, be around me anyway. I'm not, so I was going to lose the, um, the, the, the life that I'd had up to that point one way or the other. But that's my life. And she, had, she made a decision that um, addressed her biggest concern. The, the one thing that I could say is that it's not to be done casually or um, just as a whim, and I don't, I've never met anybody that did. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, the biggest problem that we have right now, the vicious circle that trans people live in is that if you come out, you still you have faced a real possibility that you'll lose your job, you'll lose your family, you'll lose the respect of the vast majority of the people that know you and become a pariah. But the only way that the culture is ever going to change is if more of us come out and take our stand and say, here I am, this is the real me, change how you think. That's how, that's how gay rights advanced. More and more people understood, hey, it's my sister, it's my cousin, it's my neighbor, it's my coworker that I've been talking about. They're real people with real concerns. They're not perverts dressed in leather marching in San Francisco. They're actual ordinary folks. And I need to change how I think about them. That's the only way that things are going to get better for trans people. So we're this, in this vicious circle where the best thing that it can happen is for every trans person to come out it's in terms of it being better for every trans person. But there's a high price to pay for many people in doing that. Have you felt the stigma uh, eventually kind of lessen over your years? Or, or is, it, is it just as bad? And then, and then I guess a follow-up question would be, um, do you see a point where it's completely gone? Is that... Is that in the very foreseeable future, or? I think that, and yes, I have, I mean, I deal with it daily. I live in a small town in the rural 
south of the United States, and I don't think I'll live to see a day when it's when there's not a stigma, uh, when when a person that's now for those who transition young, they have a lot more ability to be stealth if they choose to be, which is to say they blend in so much that nobody knows. But for a person who's out and known to be trans to go, for instance, to go to virtually any business in this town and get a job that's not a national chain like Walmart or something that has top-down policies that make it possible, I don't think I'll live to see a day when, when that will casually happen, and unless that person is very blessed to have the right connections or something beyond um, something that trumps being trans. But um, I think in more urban areas, more, as you say, more liberal areas, um, I think that over the next, say, decade, depending on how the, the popular culture reacts to our new president, um, I think that you'll see a pretty rapid shift in the same way that you saw a pretty rapid shift in gay rights. They... The challenge, the thing that I think will be difficult to achieve is uh, for the last four years or so, there's been some significant advancements in legal protections. And a lot of those um, flow from the current administration. They'll be rolled back more than likely under the next one. But they still, even though the specific legal protection might go away for a while, it moves the ball in terms of the public perception. Now, I think that will move pretty rapidly, but to actually move from that point to passing laws that um, protect equality is a much bigger challenge because so much of this country, the, um, the political power lies with the people who will be the hardest to persuade. Right. So you're going to see a lot of kind of underground movement where, for, for example, the young people that transition now, no matter where in the country they are, for the most part, their peers are perfectly fine with it. Yeah. You don't see a lot of cases where fellow students are saying, we reject this. What you see is the older generation, parents kind of imposing on the school board from the outside saying, what are y'all doing? Um, so I think as, um, as, as like just the demographic shift of these young people getting older, you'll see a society where on a day-to-day, on-the-street basis, you don't have nearly as much stigma. But in the institutions and the customs and traditions, it's going to be harder to change. Yeah, and I think some, some people on kind of the opposite side of the spectrum might find it difficult to to talk about transitioning when it's something that's so far removed from their culture and and what their uh, expectations of society are uh, do you have any tips for people who you know maybe want to talk about what trans being transgendered means um, like how to open that conversation up and like are most trans people forth like willing to have that conversation as long as it's like a respectful one I would say there's a certain element of the trans population that are just like, I am not your teacher, I'm not your, um, uh, I'm, it's not my obligation to educate you. Absolutely. You know, and they really don't want to talk about it. They, they say, you know, this is, I'm telling you who I am, 
you just accept it and move on and let's move along there are people like me and me, my from my personal experience anybody that comes to me respectfully and says i don't understand this or that help me understand it i will go to extraordinary lengths to try to resolve their um whatever misunderstanding or uncertainty they have about it and there are a lot of people like me but there's no real um methodology by which you can say is this a person willing to educate or is this a person that wants to be left alone except that you follow that person watch them how they interact on social media and so forth and it'll become apparent this is a person who's trying to educate or this is a person who's just trying to share recipes or whatever right you know? well thank you so much for opening up um I guess we're going to wrap it up. Our guest today was Tammy Rainey. She's a freelance writer and regular contributor to The Girl Inside, as well as Baseball Prospectus, where she writes about the Blue Jays. Um, you can follow her on Twitter, at Tammy underscore Beth. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, like you just said, uh, I'm, a lot of transgender people don't want to... Don't want to uh, go through the conversation, I guess, with us. So, so thank you so much for letting us, you know, pick and prod your brain. I know it's not a necessarily easy discussion, so we appreciate it immensely. Well, and I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I'll just say that there is really, there's a lot more to be said. The limitations of a broadcast like this in terms of time are uh, pretty strict. But there is, Absolutely. we could have probably spent three times the amount of time that you had available on this subject. Oh, absolutely. And I and I think that this is a nice window into people who want to maybe start having those conversations and hopefully get to have those three-hour conversations. I know they are certainly very interesting ones. Yeah, I would just to, to put a bow on that, anybody that needs to talk, they, they think of themselves, there's something I don't understand about myself, or it's my child, it's my brother, whatever. Um, my, uh, contact me on Twitter. I'm an open book, and I will do whatever I can to help anybody um, understand anything that they're, they're having some conflict about. Love it. Thanks so much. Thank you.